after our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he set down the mission and the purpose for the church. He set down the reason for our existence, and not just the reason for our existence here at Winona Gospel Church, but the reason for the church down the street, the reason for the church in South America, the reason for the church in Europe, the reason for the church in Asia, the reason for the church. This mission and this purpose that Christ set down for us, it has not changed. It has not changed in 2,000 years, nor will it change before Christ returns to gather up his children and take them to be with him where he is. Now, what is this mission? What is this purpose, you might be asking yourself? Well, Jesus gave it to us in the clearest of terms in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. If this is not underlined or highlighted in your Bible... You should do that. And if you have a problem with highlighting in your Bible, I would do it anyway. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them... To observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There it is, church. That is the mission. That is our purpose. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything that Christ has commanded. These are the marching orders of the church. They were the marching order of the church when Christ was raised from the dead. They are the marching orders for the church now. It is this mission that Christ gave to his church that sets the tone for everything we do. It sets the tone for our life together as a church. Right? Our striving for unity and our striving for love and our striving for uh, harmony with one another, it glorifies God and it buttresses our mission. Jesus said, right? You will, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. John, in his letter, his first letter, said, the world has never seen God. The closest that it actually gets to a vision of who God is at this moment is the church unified with itself. And so this mission sets the tone for our striving for unity and harmony. This mission sets the tone for our personal life of obedience and faith. There's a reason we do good works in our life. Why? Jesus told us so that people might see those good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. It also, this mission, also sets the tone for our labors in the world. We are the ones to be out in the world calling people out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important for the church to be doing than this. Now, while we know that the primary reason for the church is the glorification and the exaltation and the honor of God, the primary way by which we do that is obedience to the Lord and the height of our obedience as a church our mission is our mission to be out proclaiming the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world. This is, this is the reason we are here. And this is what Jesus modeled for us at the outset of his earthly ministry. This is what Christ was doing. He went out and he made disciples. He went out and he proclaimed the good news. He started, if you recall, way back in John or in Matthew 4:17. He started out by going through Galilee and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, calling on everyone, Matthew says in 4.17, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as Matthew records, Jesus brought this message to all Galilee in 4.23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus went out on mission and he ministered to the peoples in both word and in deed. And he preached the good news to all peoples and he healed the sick. And as a result, his fame spread far and wide, so much so that crowds from all over the place came to see him, came to hear him, came to follow him, and came to be healed by him. 
And as these crowds grew, as the crowds that were following Jesus grew, Christ began to reveal his authority in ever-increasing measure in such ways that the crowds had never before seen, never before witnessed. You recall, Jesus went up onto the mountain in Matthew chapter 5, and he sat down, and he preached the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind, the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he cleared up a number of misrepresentations of God's word that had been propagated and taught by the religious establishment of the day. And in place of those misrepresentations, he taught and proclaimed the wonderful, liberating, delight-inspiring truth of God, and the peoples responded with absolute astonishment in verse 729, chapter 7, verse 29. They responded with astonishment because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And Jesus also revealed his authority in act, not just in word, but in act as well healing every disease and healing every affliction among the people and performing great miracles. And there was a number, there were a number of responses that came on the heels of the the miracles that Jesus performed. After Christ calmed the storm, for example, when he rebuked it with a word and the entire storm went away and the sea was calm, the text in 827 tells us that the disciples marveled. And the crowds, when they saw that Jesus had healed the paralytic and forgiven that paralytic of his sin, the text tells us in chapter 9, verse 8, that the crowds were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. After Christ raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, reports went all throughout the district. After Jesus healed two blind men, they went away and they spread his fame all throughout the district. And when Jesus had cast out a demon from a mute man... The crowds, filled with amazement, declared in verse 933, chapter 9, verse 33, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And so from 423 all the way to 935, Matthew is painting a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, revealing to us who he is in his power and authority in word and his power and authority in deed. And all of this is Jesus on mission. It's a summary statement. Matthew begins 4.23 as a summary statement for everything that he's going to teach up until 9.35. From that point to this point, Matthew has been spotlighting for the reader examples of Christ's authority, examples of Christ's compassion in his teaching and healing. And now in chapter 9, verse 35, he reiterates the summary that he gave in 4.23, almost word for word, to both conclude that previous section of Matthew's gospel and introduce chapter 10, which is a treatise on mission. But there is a slight difference between chapter 4, verse 23, and chapter 9, verse 35. If you look at it, chapter 4 speaks of Christ's ministry in Galilee. He was teaching and he was healing in Galilee. Whereas 9.35 expands the scope from Galilee to all the cities and the villages. As we read, look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 35 again. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. You see, Jesus' ministry in Galilee turned into a ministry that expanded throughout all the cities and all the villages. When he speaks of cities here, he's speaking of those densely populated areas, areas with sins and debauchery all their own. We know that in a city, the sins and, and the, the disobediences and the perversions tend to be more open and obvious as people of like mind gather together to express themselves in those sins openly. While the sins of the smaller settlements or the villages tend to be a little more hidden and secret, right? The sins of suburbia are not quite as open as the sins of the city. The suburbia-type sins, we tend to keep those in the basement. We tend to practice those in the dark, and we, pr- we tend to keep them secret. And Jesus went and he ministered among both. He ministered in the highly debauched cities, and he ministered in the more proper villages. 
It didn't matter which group. It didn't matter where the village was. Jesus went anywhere and everywhere that he could to teach and to proclaim and to preach the good news. Jesus labored among all that he could. He taught in every synagogue that he could. And he consistently showed compassion to the crowds that he encountered in his ministry travels. This was his daily life. This was his mission. As he went, he taught. As he went, he proclaimed. And this is our model. The Lord Jesus Christ is our model. But one thing to take note of here is that while Jesus is indeed God come to us in the flesh, and he is, according to Matthew, out from morning to evening ministering to and among the peoples, He is only one man. In taking on flesh, Christ limited himself to being in one place at one time. Meaning if he's in the city, he's not in the village. If he's in this synagogue, he's not with the tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's house. He cannot be everywhere at once. And so as he traveled, there came a moment when he looked behind him and he saw the crowds. See that in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, meaning the large group of people who, was, who were following him, look what his disposition towards those crowds were, was, what his disposition was. In verse 36 it says, he had compassion for them. In chapter 5, verse 1, his compassion in seeing the crowds led him to preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And now here in 936, Jesus looks at the crowds with compassion. And what would that compassion lead him to do for these crowds? What does it lead us to do to the crowds that we experience and live among today? I mean, if you look out, the the situation isn't much different today than it was in the days of Jesus. There are great crowds out in the world that need to be witnessed to, that need to be ministered to. Look at the world we live in, a world in desperate need of the great shepherd, a world wearied and troubled and burdened, a sea of people who are held captive in mind by Satan, who is the deceiver. And in our day, it's so easy to look at those who are held captive in mind to the enemy. It is so easy to look at those who are different from us and become antagonistic towards them and angry with them. But do you see Christ and his disposition when he looked and he saw the crowds? Instead of anger and antagonism, Jesus had compassion for them. And the compassion here that is referred to is his being deeply moved, an internal, an emotional sympathy. It's a heart bursting with turmoil. It's, it's almost like the type of turmoil you might have experienced in your life when you felt and seen a loved one suffering. And your heart just goes out to them. If any of you have young children, there is that moment, right, when they're still really young and you've got to send them to school. And they've never been out of your sight ever in the year, all the years of their life and the bus comes that first day and you've got to kind of put them onto the bus. I don't know if there's anything more heart-wrenching and that, that brings more turmoil in the par- heart of a parent than having to actually give your kid off to a bus that's going to take them to school. And then when your kids come home, you've probably experienced this if you have children, when they come home and they start to tell you about the difficulties of their day and you wish you could just go to the school and jump all over everybody who's harassed your child. And I remember my little girl, Sophia, when she had her first day in JK. She got on the bus and my heart was just exploding inside of me as she was getting on the bus. And then she came home and she sat at the table and in her cute little high little girl voice, she started to complain because the kids in her class started calling her hair pants. They called me hair pants, daddy. Now I don't know what hair pants means. I don't think she knows what hair pants means. 
But they started calling her hairpants. And there was some distress in her voice as she was relaying that the kids were calling her hairpants. And my heart was bursting with turmoil and over her. As a dad, my heart went out to her and I wished I could go and <laughs> knock everyone's heads together and say, quit calling my girl hairpants, everybody. But you can't do that. And that's just... For me, that's one of the, the, the moments where I felt my heart just kind of like wanting to beat out of its chest in, in sympathy for my little girl. And that's just a small, small, small glimpse of the bursting heart of Christ for the crowds that were following him. And why? Why did Christ experience such a compassion for these crowds? Well, verse 36 tells us, look at it. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The crowds following Jesus were harassed. Harassed here meaning they were afflicted, they were weary, they were worn out, they were troubled, they were distressed. And they were also helpless. Those are the two words used here. Helpless meaning they were cast off and rejected, thrown away. And why? Why were they harassed and helpless? Because, the text tells us, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish audience. And they would understand this illustration of sheep without a shepherd. They would understand immediately that this comprises a stinging rebuke against the religious leaders of the day. A stinging rebuke of the Pharisees and all the other religious leaders in Israel at the time. While the people of Israel, these crowds that were following Jesus, needed the spiritual guidance and the teaching of faithful, God-fearing shepherds, they were instead abandoned by those people. They were abandoned by those who had professed to be religious leaders. And those religious leaders set themselves against the people. They set themselves against the very people who needed them. These religious leaders had no compassion for those out in the crowds who had been deceived, those who were lost. Instead, those very same religious leaders set themselves up in pride and in opposition, saying, Lord, I am so thankful that I am not like this man here. I mean, I fast twice a day. Look at this guy. He does nothing. Boy, look at me, Lord. And in, in their pride... They started to antagonize the people and they started to harass the people and the people were then, by those religious leaders who were supposed to help them, they were thrown off, cast off, like nothing more than the garbage under your shoe. They, these religious leaders in Israel were more concerned with their status than the souls of the people. And in many cases, the very wolves that were attacking these shepherdless people, these harassed and helpless people, were the actual leaders themselves, the religious leaders themselves. Instead of these religious leaders following in the footsteps of historical heroes in Israel like Joshua, remember Joshua, who when commissioned by Moses was likened to, in Numbers 27, a man over the congregation who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. This is what Israel needed. And yet, the religious leaders of the day were more akin to the wicked King Ahab, of whom the prophet Micaiah declared in 1 Kings 22, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. In saying that the people were harassed and helpless, again, the Jewish readers would instinctively know and recognize the indictment that was being made. One that was so clearly spoken of in Ezekiel 34. It's a longer reading, so open your Bibles to 34. Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 2. And there we read, Thus says the Lord God, Shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. See, the shepherds in Israel at this time were these types of men who harassed the sheep of the Lord's pasture, who fed themselves at the expense of the sheep, who clothed themselves with resources that they took from the sheep, who ruled over the sheep harshly and forcefully and left the sheep scattered so as to be food for wild, predatory beasts of the field. This is how the Pharisees are described in Matthew Why do we think, why is it any surprise that these crowds just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew whenever Jesus was around? Because he was something different. He was a shepherd who had compassion and who had sympathy on the sheep. These crowds, instead of being loved and taught and aided by the religious leaders, here were instead harassed and abandoned by them. And in many ways, this description of terrible shepherds getting fat off the sheep while the sheep starve is also prevalent in our own day as well. And you could see it in the world, you could see it in the world of religion, and you can see it in the church as well. Think about it. Think about our culture. In our culture... People are being told and waved into ever-increasing levels of self-centeredness. Love yourself. Follow your own heart. The road to happiness is found in yourself. If that's true, if people, if, 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 this, is a, if this is a true statement, why is it that along with this increase in self-centered love, do we find a corresponding increase in division, anger, and hostility with one another? Have you looked at the world out there? Have you seen what people are like out there? Do we feel, does it seem like people are growing in happiness out in the world? They're being, people are being flamed or you know, fanned into increasing narcissism, thinking that they are the center of the universe and depression rates are going up, and suicide rates are going up, and anger is rising, and the temperature all across North America is rising. And sometimes, as believers, we can respond to these crowds, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, being deceived by a culture that is run by the enemy who wants nothing more than their death. We can respond to them in the same way that the Pharisees did. I'm glad I'm not like them. We can grow an antagonism towards them, but our model is who? Our model is Jesus Christ. And when he looked back at the crowds that were harassed and helpless and deceived and duped, what was the emotion that was in him? Compassion. Compassion for those who are deluded by the enemy who are running the wide and broad and spacious road that leads to their eternal death. Not only is the culture deceiving us or trying to deceive people, but you've also got a number of the crowds who are looking for something and so they align with other religions in the world. 
And they practiced the superstitions and the dead rituals of those religions. Superstitions and rituals that will only land them before the judgment seat of the Lord and have the guilty pronouncement pronounced upon them. And yet we can start looking at the helpless sheep held captive in other religions by the deceptions of Satan and we can grow antagonistic towards them, can't we? We can start to see them as our enemy or as obstacles that need to be overcome rather than souls that need the compassion of people who bring the gospel to them. And even in the Protestant churches or even in our, more, even in our evangelical circles, we see people constantly being duped by the never-ending parade of charlatans who call themselves apostles and who call themselves prophets but who are really seeking the adoration of the crowds and the financial riches that they can take from the sheep. And it can be easy to see all of these groups, all of this crowd of people harassed and helpless and, and deluded by all of these different things, it's easy for us to condemn them. But listen, how does that reflect the Holy Spirit in us? It's easy to grow a, a condemning and harsh and angry and antagonistic spirit towards the lost, isn't it? It's easy to do that. What's hard is showing compassion. And as the world descends into increasing division and increasing chaos, it's easier and easier and easier to see those deceived by the enemy as unworthy of our time and unworthy of our attention and, like I said, obstacles that we must eliminate in order to see our earthly agenda is the one that wins the day. That's easy. Anger and antagonism, they just come naturally to us. We don't even have to try. But when you look at Christ, and when Christ looked at the souls of the unconverted, when Christ saw the souls of those who have been held under the sway and deception of sin, he felt sympathy for them, and then he did something about it. He did the most important thing that we can do, he proclaims to them the good news of forgiveness in him. That's the most important thing that we can do in this world. Proclaim to people the good news of forgiveness and in Christ. And so as Christ on this day surveyed the crowds and he noted their helpless and harassed condition, he called his disciples to him and told them to do something about it. Do you see what it is? Look at this in verse 37. Says, then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, Jesus made a few things clear here. First, the fields are in need of immediate action instantaneous attention. There is a harvest to be brought in, a plentiful harvest to be brought in. However, at this point, as Jesus said these words, the laborers were few. In fact, in fact, there, were really, there was really only one laborer in the field, and that's Jesus himself. John the Baptist had been laboring in the fields not too long before, but by this time he was in prison. And Jesus calls on the people with him, the disciples, and said, Look out there, the fields, they're ready for the harvest. So pray earnestly. Pray to the Lord for workers to be sent into the harvest. Pray for more laborers. Pray for more ministers of the gospel to the peoples, to the crowds, to the neighborhoods, villages, cities, nations, and the world. Pray that the Lord would dispatch a steady stream of laborers with the, armed with the gospel of peace throughout the earth, bringing with them the wonderful ministry of reconciliation with the Lord God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you might be sitting here saying, Whew, breathing a sigh of relief. Whew, I read that text good. I know what it says. It says, I need to pray for laborers in the harvest. Whew. I'm glad because you know what? I do pray. I pray all the time. But, uh, you know, I, I myself, I'm not really prepared to go out into the harvest and bring the sheaves in myself. So 
I just obey the words of the Lord and I pray. And we can and do often throw out a number of reasons and distinctions and justifications for staying out of the fields. However, I want you to see something that happens in the text here. Christ called on the disciples to pray for the Lord to send laborers out into the harvest. And guess who the answer to their prayer was? Themselves. You got it. They were the answer to their own prayer. See, we can produce a number of reasons why others might be better suited to laboring in the plentiful harvest, why others might be tasked, ought to be tasked with the all-important work of bringing in and laboring in the fields. Perhaps you are one that likes to make fine distinctions like, well, you know, listen, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, so I'm going to pray for more pastors and missionaries. But that's a distinction that needs to stop Because every one of us who truly trusts in Christ, every one of us who is called by the name of Christ is a missionary. Every single last one of you. This is the reason for your life on earth. And to avoid laboring in the field is for you to fail in obedience to Christ's call on each and every one of our lives to go into the fields and to make disciples. Now, you might not be a missionary in Borneo or India or Indonesia or Iran, but you are still a missionary in Grimsby, in Hamilton, and in Beamsville or wherever you live. You are a missionary when you go to Tim Hortons, when you go to the superstore, when you shop at Canadian Tire or wherever else you shop. You are a missionary in your school. You are a missionary in your place of employment. You are a missionary. But you might say to me, well, you know, Gina, I don't, I'm not a great speaker. Who am I to witness to people? I, I, I can't speak well. I think there's, a, there's an example in Scripture of someone who tried to do this once with the Lord. His name's Moses. Moses said to the Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken with your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Please send someone else. And the text recounts to us that this response of Moses kindled the anger of the Lord. And the Lord responded to Moses saying this, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. Perhaps, and I've heard this too, perhaps you might say, Well, I I mean, I just don't know God's word well enough. I don't know the Bible well enough to go out and preach or work or labor in the fields. If that's the case, that's on you. You got to start getting to know God's word more. I mean, what has kept you from learning God's word more? In this stage in age, we have more resources at our fingertips than any generation ever before us. There are more godly men preaching online that are easy to access, more books, more commentaries, more written sermons. You have everything you need. If you have not grown in your knowledge of Scripture, it is due to your own lack of commitment to doing so. So, you cannot say, I don't know the word well enough, because the answer to that is, then get to know it. Scripture tells us that we ought to be ready at all times, in season and out, to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Can you do that? If not, then you're being disobedient. Maybe you'd say, well, what if they, what if they ask me a question and I, I don't know the answer to the question? Well, that, the answer to this one is the same as the one before. Get to know God's Word. Grow in the knowledge of God's Word. And listen... If they ask you, if somebody asks you a question and you can't answer it, so what? Like, really? So what? How many things do we talk about in life that we don't know all the answers to? Let me just, let me, let me, let me give you the answer to that. Everything. It's not a legitimate reason to stay out of the fields. I've heard some say, well, what if I... What if I say something incorrect? Well, 
Again, get to studying God's word. It's still no excuse to stay out of the fields. Perhaps you'll tell yourself that you're, I'm I'm just not educated. Well, neither were the disciples. And guess where the Lord sent them? Into the fields. What you need to see here in this prayer for laborers is that the answer to the prayer is you. You. That's exactly what we see in chapter 10, verse 1. And he, Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples and gave to them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. And then verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out. These 12 And as we progress through Matthew chapter 10, you're going to need to know, Jesus prepares us for what a life laboring in the fields will look like. You will most likely be mocked. You will most likely be canceled. You probably or maybe will get fired. You'll probably lose some friends, maybe some family. You might be brought before kings and magistrates, all of which Jesus expected and all of which Jesus prepared us for in Matthew chapter 10. And we'll be going through it over the next little while. Persecution will come to those on mission. Are you prepared? Count the cost. Following Jesus is hard work. It is a difficult labor. And your primary responsibility as a follower of Jesus in the world is to be on mission for him. And so they were commanded, these disciples were commanded to pray. And then it was them who were sent out into the harvest. And as we will see as we go through chapter 10, Jesus, like I said, will go on to explain what this entails for us in the world. And let me just give you the the high point now. The heavenly rewards far outweigh the earthly repercussions. And while you might think, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, I am the most unlikely of people, the most ill-equipped and the most ill-prepared of people to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel. Well, I want you to know something. These 12 that Jesus called to him here and sent out, guess what? They were too. It's always been this way. It's always been the same. The Lord plucks the unlikeliest of people. The Lord takes the foolish of the world and sends them out to labor in his harvest. I mean, have you really looked at the 12 that he chose to send out into the world on this occasion? Look at the men that Jesus chose to send out into the field. Look at these, these men that, that were so instrumental and foundational in the forming of the church. See the names. Look at them here in verses chapter, chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. Look at those names. Whatever excuse that you might have in your mind for not being in the fields on mission right now, the disciples had it as well, and they were not exempt. The only one who ended up not proving important to the mission, to the foundation of the church and to the mission after Christ's ascension, was Judas Iscariot, in whom was the devil. So let's take a quick overview of, of, of some of these names here. If you look in chapter 2, or verse 2, the first of the names is Simon, Simon Peter. Now, have you read through the New Testament and, and noticed all of the different aspects of Simon Peter's personality? This is the same man who at one moment could possess the most tremendous amount of faith and in the next have none. This is the man who could see Christ on the water and say, if it's you, tell me to walk out to you. And yet, as he's walking out, he looks over, at the, over and he sees some wind and he starts to sink. Faith one moment, faith gone the next. One moment, Peter can say such insightful things as, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in response to a question Jesus poses about his identity. And in the very next moment, Jesus has to rebuke, rebuke Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Because Peter took it upon himself to tell Jesus, the Messiah, how to actually be the Messiah. One moment, Peter can boldly and confidently and self-assuredly tout his commitment to Jesus among all the other disciples, saying saying in Matthew 26, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And the next moment, he's denying Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. 
and even calling down curses upon his own head in the process. Eventually, this same Peter, however, while he still makes mistakes, begins to proclaim Jesus with power and with boldness. He stands up to the religious authorities who tell him to stop preaching. He creates a stir among the people. Why? Because they knew this man was an uneducated man. They knew this man was an average, everyday, ordinary Joe who worked hard at fishing. And yet, because he was with Jesus, there was something about him that was different. So when we look at Peter, you see a man who denied Jesus when Jesus was facing his most difficult trial. A man who tried to tell Jesus how to be the Messiah. A man who could have bold faith in one moment and no faith in another. We see an impulsive, hot-tempered, cowardly, tender-hearted, and insightful man who becomes more courageous over time. Now, do you see any overlaps between Peter's personality and your own? Between your skills and his? Well, he was sent out as a missionary. And so are you. You move on, you see Andrew. Andrew's the next one. Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist. And he witnessed John the Baptist pointing Jesus out when John said, There's the Lamb of God. And Andrew, seeing that, immediately ran to his brother Peter and told him, We have found the Messiah. And he brought Peter to Jesus. It was also Andrew who brought to Jesus the boy who had the five loaves and two fishes as Jesus was about to feed the 5,000. What we learn about Andrew is that he seems to be very enthusiastic and resourceful. And while Peter might go on to have the more spectacular ministry in the world, Andrew is known as the one who brought Peter to Christ. Andrew was the more one-on-one ministry guy, ministering to his family. And Andrew seemed completely content to have a more behind-the-scenes labor in the field. He still proclaimed, but he wasn't maybe like a Peter type. Is there any overlap between Andrew's personality and your own? Andrew was sent out into the field. So are you. The next name you see here is James. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These are some of the first disciples that were called and the scripture goes to great lengths to tell us that these were uneducated fishermen, ordinary, everyday men. And they had a number of flaws and drawbacks, one of which was selfishness and conceitedness. And along with that, they were a little bit cowardly as well. See, they wanted to ask Jesus for the seats of honor when Jesus came into his kingdom. And so who do you think they enlisted to go to Jesus to make that request for them? Their mom. Mom, we really want something from Jesus. Can you go to him and ask him for us? Like what? This is James and John. They were a couple of cowards. These same sons, James and John, could also be angry and vengeful. In Luke chapter 9, for example, we read that Jesus sent some people ahead of him, some of his messengers, to make preparations in a Samaritan village. But the village did not receive Jesus, and so James and John asked Jesus when they got word, saying, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And while John went on to have a long time of laboring in the fields, proving himself to be loving and compassionate, taking the words of Jesus that his people ought to love one another as Christ loved us, and, he, and penning a number of biblical works that speak to this great command of love and responsibility to, we, to one another. James, his brother, ended up quite soon after Christ's ascension being arrested by Herod the king and executed by the sword. Are there any overlaps between the personality traits of James and John and yourself? Do you find yourself at times being angry and conceited? Do you ascribe to yourself the status of uneducated? Are you working through some personality issues like they were? 
If you answer yes to all these questions, know this, these two were sent out into the mission field. And so are you. Then you got Philip. You see in verse 3, Philip. Jesus actually saw Philip and said, follow me. And Philip immediately thereafter went and found Nathanael. And he said in John 1.45 to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And when Jesus saw the large crowds coming toward him before he fed the 5,000, he asked Philip, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And Philip was a little confused by the question because Philip's kind of a hyper-literalist. And he wondered out loud in John chapter 6, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of these people to even get a little. Philip was a practical realist and thought in concrete ways. His focus on practicality and concreteness blinded him, maybe confused him a little bit as to what Jesus might actually accomplish because he had a hard time looking past the immediate. So if you were to talk to Philip and let's say Philip was upset about something and you said to him, Philip, come on, you got to put your big boy pants on and we got to move forward. He'd say, well, why do I need to change my pants? Or if you say, well, Philip, I mean, I didn't really mean you have to go change your pants. Did that go over your head? What went over my head? Right? This is Philip. And we see in Philip an average man with a thoroughly concrete and personnel, or a practical personality. But he made sure to tell those close to him about Christ. Right? Immediately, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we found him, the one of whom Scripture speaks. Are there any overlaps between your personality and Philip's? Because Philip was sent out into the harvest by Christ, and so are you. Then you've got Nathaniel, or Bartholomew. This is the man that Philip sought out, telling him that they had found the Messiah. And Bartholomew's response, he was a little bit skeptical. It's, it's Nathaniel or Bartholomew who said in response to Philip's uh, statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And even with this hesitant attitude, Jesus, when he saw Bartholomew, came toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So you see in Bartholomew a hesitant man, a little bit skeptical, but at the same time honest and faithful. Are there any overlaps between you and Bartholomew? Because Bartholomew was sent out into the field. And so are you. The next name you see here is Thomas. Thomas! And we all know Thomas as old doubting Thomas, right? We know Thomas because after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there among them. And so the disciples ran back to Thomas and they said, we've seen him, we've seen the Lord, he appeared to us. And Thomas, however, doubted their report. And he said this, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It was only after Christ appeared to him And told Thomas to believe that Thomas did believe. And when that happened, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. So in Thomas, what we see is an average man, doubtful, yet faithful. Do you ever experience times of doubt and yet remain faithful to the Lord? Well, Thomas did, and he was still sent out into the fields and so are you the next name we see is matthew the tax collector now we went over matthew not too long ago but matthew as a tax collector was hated and despised by his own countrymen this was a man who spent much of his life extorting and gaining riches at the expense of his fellow jews 
He would have been a man considered an absolute traitor by his own people. And yet we read that Matthew comes to saving faith in Jesus and begins hosting meals for people from all walks of life, tax collectors and sinners. He wanted them all to come and hear the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so while Matthew's former life was scandalous and shameful, yet upon repentance and faith in Christ, he left it all and he followed Jesus and became one of the most hospitable men you could imagine. Is there any overlap between you and Matthew? Was your life an absolute total train wreck of sin before you turned to Christ in faith? Do you ever think that your life might have one time, at one point been too vulgar or too blatantly sinful? That's Matthew. And yet Matthew came to faith in the Lord. And the Lord sent Matthew out into the fields. And he sends you as well. The next name is James. You see that? James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this is an interesting case because Scripture actually records nothing of this man's life or personality. James labored for Christ without any need for the spotlight. He seems to have been the strong, silent type. Never one to speak up when all of the disciples were talking at meals and at dinners. Never has any of his statements recorded. Introverts... James is your guy. If you are the introverted type, this is the introvert of introverts. Scripture also records that he was Matthew, the tax collector's brother. Because Matthew is referred to in Mark 2.14 as a son of Alphaeus as well. And so it's quite possible that James lived a life where his reputation suffered as a result of his relationship with Matthew. James probably had some family drama as a result of being Matthew's brother. Oh, the family drama in the, in the house of Alphaeus. Are there any overlaps maybe between your personality and James's? Are you an introvert who rarely, if ever, speaks up or speaks out? Are you someone who may have a lot of family drama and baggage coming behind you? Well, James was sent out into the field to uh, labor in the harvest. And so are you. Two more. We got Thaddeus, the son of James. We hear him speak only once in the Gospel of John when he asks Jesus in 14.22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Not a tremendous amount to note about Thaddeus' personality here, but perhaps, based on the fact that he's questioning things, he's an inquisitive fellow, a guy who really wants to know things and understand things. And so he asks questions. And when, by asking questions, it means that he doesn't have the answer to all the questions. And yet, Christ sends him out to labor in the fields, even though he doesn't have all the answers. Are there any overlaps between you and Thaddeus? He was sent out into the field, and so are you. And finally, we've got Simon the Zealot. We will cover Judas in the future. We've got Simon the Zealot. Simon's name is only ever mentioned in lists of the apostles throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. His personality is bound up with the fact that every time Simon's name is mentioned, it's always attached to the Zealot. It's always Simon the Zealot. Now, a zealot was a hyper-Jewish national who hated with every fiber of his being the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. The zealots actually adopted acts of terror as their preferred method of opposition to Roman subjection in Palestine. And they spurred people to riots, and they spurred people to revolts, and these revolts that the zealots had instigated tended to lead to a number of deaths and large-scale city destruction. The zealots were actually known to hide knives in their, in their cloaks and to slip in and out of the crowds, and if they found any Roman citizens, Roman soldiers, Jews that were traitors, or Jews that were collaborating with Rome, when they were in the crowds, they'd pull the knife out and they'd stab people in the street and then slip away 
so that they wouldn't be caught. This was an angry bunch, zealous for Jewish national religion, Jewish national institutions, and they would punish even traitorous Jews, those who they thought violated the law and aligned with the Romans, and they used Phineas in Numbers 25 as their, as their uh, permission to do so. If you remember, Phineas ran through um, the Moabite woman and the Israelite man with a spear while they went to their tent to do things. Their zealotry, inevitably, as all groups that are inspired by anger, went overboard and they started cruelly hurting and harming more people as their anger grew and grew ever more inflamed. It's these zealots who inevitably played a large part in the, in, in the ruin and fall and destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And these zealots were waiting for a militarily inclined Messiah, someone who would <clears throat> arrive on the scene and free them from the Romans. The zealots were the heavy political types. I mean, none of us know them, right? And they would have despised men like Matthew the tax collector. Right? These two would have been like oil and water, Matthew and Simon. Matthew the traitor to the, the Jewish people, Simon the hyper-Jewish nationalist. And yet, by virtue of their relationship with Jesus Christ, one of the most beautiful things occurs. In Acts, we find the disciples were in the upper room. <clears throat> and Acts, te Acts, Acts tells us this, all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. And in that list was Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. So it seems that Simon was able to lay aside some of his deeply held political views and devote himself to unified, harmonious prayer with the disciples. Are there any overlaps between you and Simon? Between his personality and your own? Are you the deeply political type, agitating and instigating arguments and whatnot? Well, you have a long way to go in your personality if that's the way, if that's you. You have a long way to, to go in your growth up into the image of Jesus, but he was sent out into the mission field. And so are you. Every one of these men had a long way to go in their growth up into the image of Christ. All of these men were gen tended to be uneducated, ordinary, everyday, average Joes. None of them had all the answers. None of them felt like they were prepared and ready to go out into the field. And yet, Jesus sent them all. Every one of these men were more unlikely than the next. And yet, Jesus tasked them with both praying for the laborers in the harvest and also being the ones that went into the harvest themselves. And so how are you doing? How has your life been up to this point in following the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because the marching orders have never changed. And you and I can find every single reason to avoid going out into the fields. Every reason. And we probably have convinced ourselves and justified ourselves of a number of reasons why we stay out of the fields. Perhaps, you know, people don't like it to be forced on them. So what? People don't like to hear the gospel. So what? I'm not good at speaking. So what? You look at the New Testament. You read the, the ministries of Peter and Jesus. There were all, a bunch of times people didn't want to hear. And guess what they did anyway? They preached. They proclaimed. They spoke. And as you preach, proclaim, and speak, there's always going to be one, three different responses. Maybe four. People will get saved. People will listen to you again on the matter, or people will get really angry with you. And that's always been the case. Read every sermon preached by someone in Acts. Those always tend to be the three responses at the end. So our call to you, Scripture's call to you, the Lord Jesus Christ's call to you, is to hear and heed the purpose for your life on earth. Primarily to glorify God, but to glorify God by going out into all the world and making disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. 
And know this, here's the, the great promise that Matthew ends his gospel on, the promise that all of us in the fields and laboring among the peoples can cling to, is this, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father, we praise you and we thank you and we honor you and we love you. And I pray this morning for all of us with the spirit of Christ in us that you would develop in us and grow in us a compassion for the crowds that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That you would develop in us the ability to see these crowds for what they are, people held captive and deceived. And I pray that you would send us out into those fields, into your fields. You've already told us in your word that the harvest is plentiful. So I pray that you would help us to go out and simply bring in that harvest that is already plentiful. I pray that you would give us conviction, that you would give us courage, that you would give us clarity in our words, and that you would help us not to justify any reason in our mind why we are exempt from being out of the mission field. Lord, may we here at Winona Gospel Church honor you in our obedience to your commission. And we thank you and we praise you in the Lord Jesus Christ who saved us. Amen.